Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Tessa Grossman. Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So uh, Tessa, I'm excited to kind of get into your backstory, but before we get to that point, um, I've got some questions I like to ask all of the guests just to kind of keep the continuity of each podcast and just to kind of get the conversation going. So uh, I'd like to know on most days, how do you start your day? Do you have a specific routine or ritual you like to stick to again on most mornings or most days? Yeah. So usually it starts with my cat waking me up way before I wanted to be up. Because <laughs> um, if he's ready to eat, that means we need to get up, right? Um, but I always start my day with a cup of coffee and I do a half, half of a bagel. It's an everything bagel with cream cheese on it. I like know, I know there's like healthier ways to start your morning or more protein, whatever you want to call it. But I love bagels and it just like, it makes me happy. And I feel like it starts my day off on like a nice note every morning. Okay, cool. Uh, what's, what, uh, what's your cat's name? His name is Sammy. He's a little orange cat. Um, he's about three years old, but I've had him since October of 2022. I adopted him. He had like been brought back to the shelter and he's just like the sweetest, like wants the most love ever. Just super cuddly. Okay, cool. Now I've got a, in all, uh, cause the, the podcast is curious and candid in all me being, uh, candid with you. I'm not <laughs> a cat person, but we'll, we'll let it, we'll let it slide today. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So um, now for some of these questions, uh, again, if there if there's like more than uh, one in terms of the next one, the next question is, what's your favorite book or do you have a favorite podcast? If there's more than one, sometimes I know for, for me, it'd be hard to kind of limit uh, books to just one. So if there's more than one book or podcast that you have in terms of like a favorite, uh, feel free to go uh, as, as long as you want sharing as many books and podcasts. But is there one favorite book or podcast, Tessa, that you have? Okay. I don't think I have like one all-time favorite book. I would say like growing up, Harry Potter was like my best friend. Like I've read that whole series. Like we're talking one through seven, probably like at least three times during middle school. Um, another book I loved growing up that I still read every once in a while just because I think it's such a good story is The Phantom Tollbooth. It's like super creative. I could not tell you who wrote it. I cannot, cannot remember, but my grandmother gave me the book. She was like a uh, teacher and it's like super creative. It's super imaginative. And I just feel like it's, it's types of stories you don't really hear as often anymore. And then I would say like my favorite book that I've read most recently is called Between Two Kingdoms. Uh, it's like a true story of this woman and she's the one who's writing the book. She basically gets leukemia at like 23 completely flips her life upside down. She was like an Ivy League grad. And it's just kind of her story of like the first half that talks about how she has to get through this cancer and just like the four-year fight and how it affects her, her family, her relationships. And the second half of the book is her basically figuring out like, who am I now that I made to the other side of the sickness? Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was just like a very profound story. It really makes you think about like, what am I actually going through? Yeah. Uh, so this, uh, the book Between Two Kingdoms, is that, uh, you, you said, so is that like a, an autobiography or is it based off a true story or? Yeah, so it's an autobiography. She like basically kept journals all throughout like her sickness and then through like her recovery and remission. And this, it, what she explained it was she kind of put it together into one 
one book after it was all done. Cool. Awesome. Uh, are you a, do you listen to podcasts? Uh, or do you have a favorite podcast or not really? Um, not really. I'm like, not, a, I feel like I can't say on a podcast, but I'm like not a huge podcast person because I find I like tend to zone out sometimes. Um, but I'm more like, I'll find podcast episodes I like. Uh, so I feel like it depends more on like the guest or the topic versus like having like one podcast where I'm like, I'm a ride or die. This is what I listen to no matter what it's on or what it's about. Right. Right. I'm, I'm right with you. I, I, uh, uh, if there's like a top, like a specific topic, you know what I mean? Or, uh, you know, uh, an individual, like I'll just go into the podcast, like search app and listen to that. And, uh, sometimes you find some really good podcasts. Sometimes there are some crappy ones, but I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Uh, now, uh, do you have uh it was, it's kind of interesting because obviously you we're going to get into your college background and your career uh, in terms of like the academic side of things or in terms of like your profession being a strength and conditioning coach with with uh, with regard to a book or books. Is there like a book academically or specifically related related to strength and conditioning that you've enjoyed or that you would recommend or uh, not really? Oh, that's a tough question. I was because I was kind of surprised that you you went kind of in a different direction with the book. So, <laughs> um, that's a really tough question. I wouldn't say that I necessarily have like a strength and conditioning book where I'm like, this is my book. This is what I tell everyone to read. I think it really depends on like what you're looking for and what you're trying to learn, and also what part of your like career you're at. I think that my book choice has probably surprised you because like my undergrad was not in exercise science. My undergrad was in sociology. Mm-hmm. So that like read led to like a really wide range of books from like economics, racial, like just a lot of different stuff. Um, so I don't necessarily have like a strength and conditioning book where I'm like, oh my God, you need to read this. If someone was like, I want to learn about this or like, hey, I'm just starting out, then like, I'd be like, hey, you know, check out this book, check out that book. Um, so I really think it's like everything we do in strength and conditioning, very context dependent about what you're looking for. Perfect. Cool. Um, all right. So, uh, again, uh, so the next question is what life lesson have you uh, been taught or learned in the last year? It could be the last month. It could be the last six months. It could be the last couple of years. Um, but just within recent times, what life lesson have you been taught or have you learned Tessa? Um, I would say that there's two big life lessons that I feel like have really sunk in more this year than others. I think the first one, so I'm from San Diego, California. My family still lives there. Mom, dad, and brother, they're all still down there. Uh, I left for college. Um, I went out to New Hampshire for college across the country, and I've been away from home ever since. I've been away from home for about seven years. I see my family probably two times a year right now. And I think like when I was first starting out, and like chasing my career and like just so excited to get these opportunities. And I still am, don't get me wrong, but I think like my priorities are starting to shift. Like I just turned 25 and I feel like I had like that little quarter life crisis where I was like, what's really important. And and my mom who's like, you know, she's had the 50, like 50 year old birthday. She's like, okay, wait till you, wait till you get to 30, wait till you get to 40. Like you think you're having a crisis now. Um, But yeah, it just like made me reevaluate like, what is important? Like, I want to see my family more than twice a year. Like, 
I don't necessarily want to work a job that's maybe on the opposite side of the country if it means that, you know, I rarely see my family. Um, where I feel like when I was fresh out of college, 22, 23, I know it was like not that big of a difference, 22, 25, but uh, to me it is right now. Um, but when I was like fresh out of college, I was just like, where's the opportunity I want to go? Like, I was just like really like looking for that next piece of adventure. Um, so I feel like that is kind of a big lesson I've learned or like more of a priority shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other one, which I think is pretty common, I think, especially if you work in athletics, it's just like learning how to set boundaries for yourself. Mm-hmm. Once again, I think like probably most people, when you start your career, you just like want to do everything and be everywhere and like, just do the best job you can do, but it's exhausting. And I think like this last year of work made me realize like there needs to be boundaries in order for there to be longevity. And it's just like, I have to be able to sit back and come up with like realistic expectations because if I just continue to like drive, drive, drive into the ground and then I'm just, you know, burnt out by the end of every year, like one, that's not healthy for me and I'm not taking care of myself, but two, I'm like also not providing the best thing that I can provide for my athletes, for my coworkers, for my boss. Like there needs to be boundaries so that I can provide the best product possible for myself and others, which I feel like is hard. It was, it's been hard for me to except that I can't just go 100% all the time and things will just be perfect. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, that That's very, that's a very important, uh, you know, uh, topic that you just touched on there, tested with the boundary. So I want to pull back the layers just a little bit further in terms of that. Uh, so so um, what what type of boundaries have you learned that you need to set in place for yourself so that you can be the best version of yourself for, for yourself or your athletes? for your career, for your future? Like what are some of those boundaries that you've implemented recently, if you don't mind uh, sharing? Um, I think a big one for me is like making sure I carve out time to like see the people that I love mm-hmm. and just like making sure that's a priority. Um, and being willing, I guess, to like kind of ask for that time. I think like when I first got in the field, I was really nervous to like ask for that time off or like make it clear that like this is something I need to do because I didn't want to like rock the boat. But for me, like going home and seeing my family is like such a like reset and kind of a renewal that I know I need. And I just like had to get more comfortable with maybe having uncomfortable conversations in order to create those boundaries. Mm. Um, I think another thing is like understanding that there is a time and a place for like my athletes to reach out to me. Like I'm going to be there for you, but Hey, like, you know, if you call me at 9 PM, like I'm probably not going to pick up, but year one, I probably would have picked up. Um, So I just think those types of boundaries And then also a big one I've discovered working in this field is like having a community that is outside of like everything else I do. Mm -hmm. And I found that for me, like that's pretty essential to like my mental health. And and it's a boundary in itself, not because I'm saying like, hey, you know, my work people, you can't come into this community. They could. But for me, it's like, no, when I'm here, like this is me stepping away from my work. That's 95 percent of my life. And taking that 5% for me. Um, and that that has been essential. And I've it's led me to like kind of get some cool new hobbies as I like have found new places to kind of get away and create like that little, I don't know, little place away from everything. Hmm. 
that that's that is very powerful right there, and I think that's a valuable uh, uh, takeaway for for all of us listening. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's let's wrap things up here with this question. Then we're going to kind of get more into your your childhood and your upbringing, Tessa, your backstory a little bit more. So, uh, do you have a favorite quote, mantra, or word? Yes. Okay. So my favorite quote, um, it's never let your fear decide your fate. I think I heard it in some song in sixth grade and it's really been like my mantra quote, whatever. It's what I live by though. I've lived by it since I've heard it. Um, I think it's actually tattooed on my back, right? Shoulder. Yeah. My back, right shoulder. Um, I got it right after I went to college. Um, my mom knew she was there with me to support it. (laughs) So go mom. Uh, but it's just, the part of my field that I've chosen to go into, like I work in football and like, obviously I'm female. So there's just like a lot of moments where I have to like, I have to decide, am I going to like, let the fear affect how I handle situations or affect how, what opportunities I go for. And I just feel like it's a really reoccurring theme in my life. And I never want to like, look back and be like, wow, I didn't try something or go for something just because I was afraid. I'd rather go for it. And like, if I fail, I fail. But like, at least I can look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and be like, I tried, you know, like I did it instead of having like that. What if just like burning in the back of my head? Uh, If you don't mind me asking uh, that quote, uh, do you know who sang uh, that in one of their songs or do you forget? I really couldn't even tell you. Like, I don't even think I've heard the song in years, but that, for some reason, that line just like, it stuck with me. Okay, cool. I, I, was, th- I was thinking maybe it was something that you, it was like maybe a singer that you wanted to forget, or maybe it was like Taylor Swift or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> I definitely know it was not Taylor Swift, but okay, no, I couldn't okay, tell you who okay. it was. All right. All right. Um, okay, cool, Tessa. So, um, we're going to kind of transition at this point into, like I've mentioned a couple of times, your upbringing and your your childhood. Uh, so I want you, uh, if you don't mind, you already kind of mentioned being from San Diego, California. So that's uh, where you grew up. But uh, what was life like for you? So um, siblings, sports, other extracurricular activities. Uh, did you enjoy school? Did you go to school just so you could play sports? Like what was Tessa like when she was... Uh, younger why don't you just talk a little bit about um those younger years up to high school and then we'll transition from there yeah um i was okay so first of all is the music behind me if it's too loud let me know i, I can't hear it you're good oh, perfect okay because <laughs> i'm in a weight room so you know how it is yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i get it i get it <laughs> uh okay so i was born in um california grew up in southern california i grew up in oceanside california which is about 45 minutes north of san diego um grew up with my mom my dad and then my younger brother he's three years and three months to the day younger than me um my family was really close like my immediate family my mom is half Hispanic and then half Italian and she grew up in a Catholic background um so like her dad was from like he immigrated from Mexico so like she was like first gen um and then my dad's side we don't entirely know but like we know he was European we later found out that he was like Ukrainian that was like a bulk of his like heritage but he was Jewish so like my household 
my household was very diverse and like we have like pretty much any ethnicity or religious background you want you can find it somewhere in the family tree whether they married in whether they're on one side of the family versus the other so like I grew up in diversity which I think I'm very grateful for because I didn't realize when I was growing up that that wasn't necessarily always the case for people um and like going to school like where I grew up it was heavily Hispanic everyone was Mexican or some some sort of like Hispanic heritage like they could be blonde blue-eyed and you just kind of assumed like they're probably Hispanic somewhere because that was just what the area was like my high school I think was 75 percent Hispanic um, so you had a really wide range of people who, you know, had just immigrated here, maybe English is their second language, to people like me where it's like, mm, they don't really look Hispanic and they don't speak Spanish, but I know they're Hispanic. Um, so growing up in diversity, I don't think I ever really questioned the diversity or like questioned different backgrounds when I was growing up, which like plays an important role when I get to college, which I know we'll get there, but um I was a super nerd growing up, 100%. Um, my parents, especially like my mom, really preached education. Both my parents really preached education. But like my mom's dad, he's the one who immigrated from Mexico. Like his whole belief was that like your, your education is like the key to success. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to come from school, right? But he was like knowledge is power. And so he really wanted to make sure my mom was educated. It's like my mom, she, you know, went to college. She got her master's in industrial psychology. So like growing up, like that was the same type of mentality she kind of placed on me. And I loved school, like loved it. Um, I was such a dork. <laughs> my mom tells me these stories of like in preschool, we used to get like reading lessons and you'd sit down with the teacher and you like go through the book and sign out all the words and the vowels and all that fun stuff. And I would like come back and try to get a second reading lesson in the day. And the teacher would be like, Tessa, like other kids need to learn. And I'd be like, but I'm here and I want to learn. And I like didn't understand. I was like, no, like, what do you mean? Like, I'm ready to learn more. So now it's time to learn more. Um, I was a sneaky kid too. Like my preschool teacher told my mom, I guess, when we were in lines, like we'd be in like line to go lunch and some kid would like try to cut me. And instead of saying something, I would just like throw an elbow and then like look around like I didn't do anything. So I don't know. I feel like I've always just kind of like had a mind of my own. Um, the school thing kind of followed me all the way through. Like I was always a really good student. I really enjoyed school. I liked learning. I wanted to learn more. I wanted the next lesson. Um, but I was definitely like a weird kid. Like we had like, we had Guitar Hero and one of the songs on there was like Holiday in Cambodia, which is by the Dead Kennedys. And I would like have that song on my playlist at like 12 years old, but like also have Hannah Montana. So like, that's just like the wide, <laughs> the wide variance of like who I was at 12 years old. Um, my parents put me like in all the sports and everything and softballs and as well, like what ended up sticking. So I started playing softball when I was like five years old. My mom honestly thought I was never going to play again. She like asked me after a season, she's like, do you want to do this again? And I was like, yes, like I love it. And my mom was like, but you were literally drawing in the dirt at shortstop. Like, are you sure this is what you want? But I was like, yeah. And so they let me ride with it and softball, softball became my thing. That became the athletic route that I went down. Um, and that followed me all the way through, um, all the way to college. Um, 
I love to read, like reading became my best friend. Um, I love the library. Like I would literally go to the library and the max amount of books you could check out was 24. And I know this because I tried to check out more and I would like, I had a whole system. Like I would like put all my books out and I would like pick which ones were like the ones I wanted to read and like filter them all out. And I would usually get through like probably 22 out of 24 of those books in like three weeks. Like I read, like there was nothing else going on. Um, and I feel like when I got into middle school, so I went to a private school and then I switched over in fifth grade to public school. Hmm. And we switched me over because the private school was getting really small. Um, There's only gonna be like eight kids in my eighth grade class by the time I finished. And my mom, we agreed like, you know, let's make me a little bit more normal. Like let's put me in public school, social skills. We knew I was gonna end up going to like a public high school anyways. So we figured like, let's just start that jump. Um, that was, I think, probably a tougher transition than I realized when I was in it. Like when I got into fifth grade, like I definitely got made fun of, I think for being a smarter kid and for like enjoying school. Like I remember we used to have like these abridged versions of books of like classics, like Tale of Two Cities, Snow White, all that stuff. And I read them like it was nothing. And I remember the girls, like the look, the popular girls would make fun of me and they'd be like, you're not reading, like you're lying, like you're faking reading. And in my head, I was like, why the heck would I be lying to you about reading? And then like on the playground, like I'd get made fun of because like I would beat the boys at sports. And so they'd like be like, oh, like no test is allowed in this game. Like little stupid stuff like that. That when you're like 10, your brain is like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, why is this this way? Um, and some of that kind of went into middle school too. I think because of the area I was in, leaving home was like not always, like leaving home and like going to college and finding success wasn't always like the most chosen route. And I think you could go into like a lot of like sociological reasons behind that. Um, but because of that, like I remember in sixth grade, like I used to get made fun of a lot because I would like, good at school to like the point where like I'd be in a group and they'd be like Tessa what's the answer and I'd like go ask a teacher a question and then I would like come back and they would like have taken the answers off my paper and so like I just like start, had to start like bringing my papers with me so people like wouldn't cheat off of my work but like wanted to make fun of me at the same time mm -hmm. so like as I reflect like now I think like that fifth sixth year like it was definitely tough because it's like well I thought I'm supposed to be smart I thought I'm supposed to be good at school like I thought these are the things that we want to do but I was like getting kind of like made fun of for it um but yeah so that kind of like followed me throughout middle school kind of like never really found like a solid group of friends I don't know I was just, like kind of a weird kid I felt like like I was never quite on like the same wavelength as like maybe like the other kids um yeah and so then I got to high school and played high school softball uh you know I found honors courses I was in student government I kind of find it started to find my place more and then I uh committed to play softball at Dartmouth College for me like going Ivy League like that was the dream like that was what I wanted like people ask me all the time they're like was that something that your parents wanted you to do and I go no 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 no. they did not want it like <laughs> paying for an Ivy League degree that was not on the on the checklist for them <laughs> um like that was me like in eighth grade I decided that Dartmouth College was my dream school and that's where I ended up committing and 
like I just it's one of those things where it's like wow like this was my dream and I did it and that was just like a really full circle moment um but I felt like as I moved through high school I like started to find my group of people I found people who had like kind of goals like mine were more like-minded um had similar aspirations like had these big dreams um and then I committed to Dartmouth and that was like the dream come true I wanted a fresh start I wanted to go to the Ivy League I wanted to be around academic kids I wanted to be around high achieving people and that's not to say those weren't there because they definitely were and like but like that was what I wanted um so yeah that kind of takes us to the end of high school okay now I want to touch on a couple things here uh first of all you said that you you uh kind of found out about uh uh, Dartmouth uh, in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Now, how in the world did you hear about this Ivy League school or even know what Ivy League schools were at that age? Because when I was in middle school, all I cared about was sports and I had no clue about anything Ivy League. Probably even when I graduated from high school, I didn't even know. But uh, how, how did that come on the radar for you? Talk, talk about that. Um. Okay. When I was in eighth grade, it was like kind of you kind of get to the point where it's like okay are you gonna try to pursue athletics in like a recruiting standpoint or are you just kind of gonna do this for fun like where are we going with this um softball recruiting honestly sucks I hated it um if you're really really good or you're a kid who like had this crazy growth spurt and you look like you're 18 at 14 then you probably committed to like a big power five Alabama Oklahoma UCLA right away the rest of us are just grinding it out for all of high school, just trying to get looks, trying to, you know, get in front of people, find that school that's your fit. So when I was doing research, like I knew that I wanted to go academic, like softball is not forever. Um, I knew that for most of us, softball in college is the last stop. And I want to set myself up for success after college. Um, I love softball, but like I said, it wasn't going to be everything. At some point I need to move on. And so when I was doing research, that's kind of kind of find out about the Ivy League. And I was like, this is where I want to be. Like, for me, the academics, like, that was my UCLA. Like, that was my Oklahoma. Like, I want to be at the best academic school I can possibly be at. And at the time, I thought I wanted to go more of, like, a, like, science, maybe pre-med route. And, like, Dartmouth had a really good, like, uh, bio department. And so that was why, and they were good at softball. They had like just won the Ivy League uh, championship. So I was like, okay, they got the degree I thought I wanted. They're good at softball. You know, they're like a 7% acceptance rate. Like once I saw that, I was just like, everything clicked. And I was like, this, this is where I want to be. Wow. It's pretty impressive for uh, an eighth grader <laughs> thinking about all that uh, for sure. Now, um, what did you have to do to get into an Ivy League school? Because obviously we we all know that that's the elite of the elite academically in our country is to get into an Ivy League school. And you, you mentioned the, the acceptance rate being like 7% where you went. So what was like the process of getting into Dartmouth? Like, you know, obviously I know sports and extracurricular activities for any college, they want to see that. Obviously the academics, but I mean, you had to have like a an SAT score, ACT score that was, I'm assuming, legit. What were some of those things that you really had to focus on to get into an Ivy League school, Tessa? Because I personally have no clue. Um. Yeah, so pretty much when I started high school, I was like, I'm going to take all the hard classes because that's what who I am. And like, I knew I wanted to go Ivy League, but like, 
I didn't know if it was a true possibility yet, like based on my softball skill. But like, I just chose to pursue the hardest academic route I could in high school, which paid off in the end. Um, but that meant taking all the AP classes, all the honor classes, like right from the start. Like I think my junior, my junior year was a freaking hard year of school. Like I'll give you like a general junior year. Like I was taking six, I think AP classes. So my entire slate was AP, like literally even AP art, which you're like, how is art even AP? Yeah. Same question. Um, but, and then SAT and ACT prep. So I started that after my sophomore year, I started it early and like, I'm still playing club softball at this point. So like a lot of the times, like my Saturday would look like get up, go drive like an hour, practice for three hours, then drive like an hour and a half back and then take like a four hour SAT prep class. And that was like a typical Saturday for me, like end of sophomore year. Um, and I just, I don't know, like I think back and I'm like, how did I have the like determination and focus to do that? Cause if someone asked me to do that right now, I don't know if I would still have that in me. Um, but I was just like really focused on it. I think there was a big element of me that like wanted to like get out, so to say, in terms of like, I really wanted to go have that adventure and have like that academic experience. And so that was like kind of the intrinsic driver. Um, but yeah, so I took the ACT and the SAT three times each. I did a prep class, um, did my own studying, um, took all the APs and honors classes. My SAT and ACT scores were like good. They were okay by Ivy League measures, but like my high school GPA was phenomenal. And that's like ultimately what really like you needed to have like a really good GPA or like a phenomenal test score. And like obviously having both helped, but you really need to have one or the other. Um, I think like one of the toughest things for me is like you got to have like a pretty clean, uh, what you call it, like, um, oh, my God, transcript, clean transcript. And I had a I had a C in one of my class in one of my math classes. Math was like not my strong point. And like I literally had to work my ass off and I had a C for the first semester. And the teacher was basically like, OK, if you can show me that you've learned this stuff then like and you show me on the final that you know these concepts and the new concepts then we can talk about like giving you an overall B and so that's what I did and I did a guy killed the final she gave me a B we were able to fix that but like that was like a big glaring like red flag on my transcript like I remember talking to my club coach at the time and he was like yeah like like they don't take kids with C's so we got to figure this out um so that was kind of the process and then you put in the application in terms of like recruiting when you get recruited to an ivy league from what i understand i don't know if this is still the same it could be different now but when i got recruited basically depending on the sport they have like a certain amount of spots that when they put the kids application in it's like hey i really want this kid so like it's not a guarantee you're gonna get in but they basically like pre-screen you so they know if you're gonna get in or not so they like pre-screen my stuff you do an early application, so early decision. And then it was December 16th, 2019. I got my finally, you know, admitted into Dartmouth. But it was it was a hard process for sure. Yeah. Now, you being a, a an athlete, did that uh, benefit you to, to get into Dartmouth or not necessarily? Yes. Okay. Benefited me a lot. 
However, I do like to think that if I didn't play a sport, I would have had like significantly more time to do academics. Um, so like, I think it would have been possible either way. It just was like one of those things is like, what are you going to put your energy into? And I wanted to be an athlete. And so I was able to do enough on both ends. But being an athlete definitely helps because, like I said, you get that pre-screen. You have someone kind of like fighting for you on that other side of emissions. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely some pros to it. Hmm. Um, I want to before we kind of dive into, uh, you know, more of college talk and your current profession, I want to go back and touch on your your parents. So uh if you don't mind me asking, Tessa, what did your parents do in terms of like jobs or their careers? And then what did they kind of think of your drive to be, uh, you know, excellent academically? And, and what did they think? Obviously proud, but, you know, what did they say to you? What did they think when you got into Dartmouth? And and uh, what, what do they kind of think of your success up to this point? Um. Okay. First and foremost, like I am so extremely grateful because my parents have been supportive of everything I've attempted in my life. And there's such a big reason as to like why I've found success. Like anytime I'm like, I want to go after this. They're like, awesome. Let's do it. How do we go after this? hundred percent. Um, and I'm just really grateful. Cause once again, something I didn't really realize growing up, not everyone gets, I was like kind of naive and, uh, you know, sheltered from that point of view. And I just, I'm just really grateful for them. Cause I know other people who didn't get that same support and, it just really makes a world difference to know, like, you know, these people that you love are behind you always. Um, so my mom, like I said, she did her master's, she finished her master's in industrial psychology and she worked at a gas station for a while, or that's she worked for a gas station company for a while. She did human resources and stuff. Um, but when she had me and my brother, she wanted a career that she could do more at her own ease. So now she's like a massage therapist um she does past life regression she does cupping she does human design readings she does the full spectrum of like self-healing spirituality all of it um that's kind of become my mom's path uh and then my dad he um is my dad works in like the side of like food and beverage prep that does like the, the factory stuff so like they sell a lot of stuff at like They'll put in the factories to like clean, prep bottles. Um, he works with like a lot of like microbrewery stuff like that. Um, he works on like the sales side. So he manages a lot of accounts, visits. Um, honestly, growing up, I don't think I really understood what my dad did. And to this day, I probably still don't understand it perfectly. Um, but my dad is a neat freak. He loves things clean. So I feel like it fits his personality. Um, but yeah, that's what my parents do and I actually asked my mom this question the day I said what did you think when I told you that I wanted to go to Dartmouth but I also wanted to be a strength coach mm. and she was like honestly she goes I didn't even bat an eye she's like I wasn't even worried like I wasn't even concerned I was like do your thing um and I'm really grateful because I feel like the more I get into adulthood the more I realize a how much things cost and B, how you have to like be able to balance like the practicality and like the dream chasing, dream chasing. Um, yeah, my parents are just like so supportive. Like I said, me going to Ivy League was my choice. My mom did say, if you're going to go across the country, you better get into your dream school. And then I did. And she was like, 
well, okay, then I guess you're going to New Hampshire. <laughs> She's Very like, you're cool. going across the country for some small little D3 in the middle of nowhere. She goes, it got to be like, you got to be going for a reason. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I took that to heart, clearly. Um, but yeah, my parents, I don't know, they're just like amazing. I literally mm. couldn't ask for better parents. Like they're yeah. just so supportive. I would not be where I am without them. Mm. Love that. Okay, something I want to touch touch on is uh, something that you mentioned earlier, and let's tie it in right now because I don't want to forget about discussing uh, diversity. So you already talked about kind of like your uh, ocean side where you grew up, uh, the the public school that you went to, and a uh, uh, very high percentage of Hispanics, and and you mentioned kind of growing up in diversity. When you were younger, you didn't necessarily realize that diversity, but you said once you kind of got into college and things like that, you kind of recognize the diversity that you grew up in. So my question for you, Tessa, is now as you are an adult and in your career slash profession, how important do you feel like that diversity that you were exposed to and, and uh, you know, um, grew up in has, has helped you in a positive manner, you know, as an adult through college and in your current career? Um, yeah. So... It's been extremely helpful, obviously working in athletics. Um, I think to put it in short, like I grew up in a super diverse area, like we like we said, and then I went to college and I went to a predominantly white school. Mm. So I went from like never really addressing all this diversity, which and like being a little naive to it and like some of the issues that come with diversity to like when I got to college, it was like, I had people asking me all the time, like, what's your ethnicity? What's your background? Like, people would ask me, like, are you mixed? And I, like, had never been asked these questions in my life. And I know. I know. You're, like, looking at me right now, and you're, like, what? I know. That's exactly how I felt. Um, you know, people would ask me, and they find out I'm Hispanic. They'd be, like, oh, do you speak Spanish? And if I didn't, which I don't really speak Spanish, they would be, like, well, why don't you? Like, oh, you're not, like, a real Mexican, you know? And, yeah, I know. And, like, I found that I had a really hard time finding where I fit because all of a sudden it's like I wasn't white enough and I wasn't ethnic enough and I couldn't really find my place in either community. Um, and it was also the first time that I had to like, once again, this is like a very privileged point of view. It was the first time that I like had really, someone had identified me as a minority. Hmm. And like growing up, we didn't really identify that way because everyone was and so when I got to college and all of a sudden I was a minority it was like it like really made me have to like self-reflect and re-examine like what is my identity and it's like interesting because like my mom like she's you know Hispanic she's first generation like technically I'm second generation my mom's like oh you're a white girl but you know I go across the country and all of a sudden they're asking me if I'm mixed so it's just like interesting how a living in different parts of the country affects what people see and like how they perceive you and b it was like just like growing up in so much diversity never made me really have to like examine that part of myself mm. and then being in that white a wider community in college really made me be like oh crap like how do I identify like mm. what what do I tell people now like who am I um which I think is the point of college but that was like definitely a big experience. Um, and so, but like, it's been helpful because I feel like I got to kind of dabble in all these different like 
ethnic groups while I was at Dartmouth trying to kind of find my place and having other friends who were similar to me, you know, maybe half this, half that, never really fully in one group or the other. And so it gave me a lot of exposure. And when I went to work in athletics, I feel like it made me better able to relate to a wide variety of athletes. So like, once again, very grateful for the experience because it's definitely like made me a better coach. And it's like made me be able to kind of take a step back and think about like, hey, like, you know, maybe this kid feels the same way I did. Maybe they don't really know where they fit in because they're half this or half that or, you know, their community doesn't deem them ethnic enough because they don't speak the language or like whatever it may be. But I think it definitely made me more accepting and made me more able to relate to my athletes um, across kind of a, a wide group. Hmm. Okay, something else I want to touch on here, Tessa, if you, uh, because I personally am a firm believer, like I grew up in a, in a very small town in Iowa, uh, less than 5,000 people, 99.9% uh, .9 white, okay? And then I moved out to inner city Detroit, Oh, wow. And uh, did ministry work there and worked at the YMCA as a summer uh, youth camp counselor. Okay. Now, my experience there was I was a minority for the first time in my life, kind of similar to you. And it was, it was just a very uh, eye-opening experience, right? I personally believe it's very important for us humans to get out of the comfort zone, whatever that might be, especially like our home environment and kind of like what we've always been taught, what we've always known the religious side of things, skin color. It's important for us to get uncomfortable uh, in order for us to grow. So do you feel like you going from California to New Hampshire and having those experiences in college helped you to grow and mature as a human being? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think first and foremost, like me just moving across the country by myself, like, yeah, I moved and I had like a team and like, I did have an, like an immediate community, which I don't have in some of my, I didn't have in some of my moves, like later on the line when I start like my career path. Um, that in itself made me grow up a lot. It's like all these things now that you, you know, run to your parents for, or like have them there to help you with. No, you're on your own. Like you're sick. Like you got to figure that out on your own. Like mom's not there to tuck you in and give you medicine. <laughs> like you got to get yourself to CVS and get whatever medicine you need now. Um, but I definitely think like having these different diversity experiences are super important because it one allows you to like look at yourself from a different perspective two it makes you way more open-minded and three I think it makes you like more more aware of like what other people's realities are like I think it's really easy to forget that like how you see the world and how you think and how you move day to day is not how most other people move mm -hmm. like it's specific to you based on like what you've gone through and everything that's happened in your life up until that point. And so it's easy to forget that like other people are not functioning the same way as you. They haven't had the same experiences. And like, like one concept that I think is crazy, like me and you could have the same exact experience and we could perceive it completely different ways. I could perceive it in a positive way and you could perceive it in a negative way. And that could completely change how our next three months look, but we had the same experience but we just perceive it differently. And so I think that's something that I've had to like, I have to check myself on sometimes. And so like the more places I move, I feel like the 
better it makes me at being able to go into situations a lot more open-minded um, and just aware of like how maybe others are taking the situation in. Um, like I lived, I lived in New Hampshire, then I moved to Illinois and uh, that was, you know, Midwest was a brand new experience. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm in Tennessee. So like, I've kind of gotten to see like West, East, Midwest, South, even though some people would say Tennessee is not necessarily South. Um, but to my California self, Tennessee is South. Um, and yeah, it's just like, it's been very interesting comparing and contrasting the different ways that people kind of move through life in all these different parts of the country. Cause it's definitely not the same. Yeah. Okay. Talk to us about studying sociology in college and then how you got into strength and conditioning because that's your career. Uh, those two usually don't go uh, together. So <laughs> how did that come to be? Cause that's very fascinating. And then uh, we've talked about diversity. We're going to get into uh, the, the gender side of things because I'm also very fascinated about a female strength and conditioning coach, because that is something that, uh, you don't come across every day, but let's start with sociology to strength and conditioning. Stop there. And then I'll ask you, uh, about what I just, uh, mentioned. Alrighty. So I actually knew I wanted to be a strength coach before I committed to Dartmouth. Okay. So we went into this fully knowing, like, I'm going to get this amazing academic experience and then I'm going to go be a meathead. Um, <laughs> so like I do, I get that question all the time too. Like, why did you go to Dartmouth if like you wanted to be a strength coach? Um, I chose to still pursue academics because I, I think people do get like the misconception and I'm sure you can relate to this that like, just cause you work in like strength and conditioning or in a gym, like we're just meatheads and we just want to like lift and we don't think. And like, that's just so not true. Yeah. Like there's so many highly intelligent people that yeah. work in our field, um, if you just like look past the stereotype. Um, and so it actually came down to two choices for me. Basically, I could have gone to Dartmouth and done something that didn't have my degree, or I could have gone to a more an academic school still, but a D3 school out in Washington called uh, Whitworth and pursued exercise science as my degree. So I knowingly made the decision though. I was like, Dartmouth is my dream school. And so I was like, I gotta go. I can't like pass this opportunity up. And I just made honestly the calculated risk that like having an Ivy degree and the connections that come with that were going to get me further to where I wanted to go. And I like made the promise to myself that like when I went to Dartmouth, I was going to work my ass off and have, have as much experience as I could by the time I got out of college so that there was no way for them to say like, you're not qualified because I had all these experiences. So like, yeah, I don't have the degree, but here's all the practical stuff I did to make up for it. Um, but so when I got to Dartmouth, I had no idea what the heck I was going to major in. I thought I wanted to do psychology. I took like two or three psych classes. They did not go the best. <laughs> um, and I was just like something about psych and like all the like, I don't care about the neurotransmitters. I don't care about all that stuff right now. Someone was like, try SOCI. It's the same thing. It's just like not as like sciencey. Um, and I did a SOCI class and it just like clicked. It was just like, yes, like it just matched how my brain thinks it matched my thought process and matched my logic. And I don't want to say it was easy because it wasn't easy. There's definitely stuff that challenged because like you had to take econ classes. You had to take these classes that were not necessarily maybe what you thought you were going to be studying. Um, but like just the way that we thought through it and the thought processes of it 
really matched with how my brain likes to think. And so, yeah, I did SOCI. I loved it. I would recommend it. Honestly, I think it makes you have to look at the world in different ways. And it makes you look at things from different perspectives, which kind of goes hand in hand with like a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Like I said, we had to do, we had to take econ classes. We had to talk about capitalism. We had to talk about, you know, right-hand countries in Europe, like all these things that are not necessarily in your day-to-day scope of like thinking and discussion. Um, So from there, I worked my butt off, basically worked in an internship anytime I can or anytime I could during my college career. By the time I finished college, I had, I think four or five, five different, I had five different strength and conditioning internships completed, um, which included an NFL internship, a power five internship, um, a small intern, like a small D one internship and then private sector internships. So like I had a checklist, like I knew what we were doing. Um, from there, I actually wanted to go into biomechanics for my master's. I was like ready to go a little bit more sciencey and they were like, Tess, we cannot take you from SOCI and put you in a biomechanics master's program and I was like all right checks out um so we went with sports psych instead which I loved um absolutely loved it and uh yeah so I finished my master's got my master's in sports psych um so my background is like very social science biased right okay so before we get into the the female side of things with strength and conditioning why I mean you said when you went to Dartmouth you knew that you want to do strength and conditioning you did all these internships so how far back did you know that you wanted to get into strength and conditioning? When were you kind of exposed to that? I'm, I'm assuming through softball at some point, but but why strength and conditioning? Like, why was that something that you uh, were interested in, Tessa? Yeah, so when I was, I think, 14, I just, like, remember this incident so clearly. I had a, a club coach tell me, basically, like, you're not strong enough to go play Division One softball. Like, either get stronger or be okay with like going to a small school. And I was like, all right, my guy, calm down. Fine. I'll get stronger. So I went to our football strength coach in high school and I said, can you teach me how to lift? And he said, sure. So he started teaching me how to lift. And I like slowly kind of started learning. That was like my sophomore year of high school, I think. Um, And I like liked lifting through sophomore, junior year, but Basically, my senior year, I actually didn't play my senior year of high school softball. Um, It just, like, was a very toxic environment. It wasn't good for me. I was miserable. And it wasn't about softball. Like, it was just the environment itself. Um, And, like, if you aren't familiar with softball recruiting, like, softball recruiting happens all in club ball. Like, high school softball doesn't matter. So I didn't need it. Like, I'd already committed. I'd signed the papers. I was going to Dartmouth. Like, at that point, I was like, let's get ready to go to Dartmouth. Um, And so I started training at a private sector place, which is like my mom's idea. And I freaking loved it. And I was there every day and I fell in love with it. And that was like the first time, like I really got to train and see like, oh, you could like do this as a profession. Um, So that was kind of when it clicked for me, like, oh, okay, this is what I want. But I had kind of been introduced to it all through high school. Um, And yeah, that was, so basically my senior year of high school, I was locked in. I was like, let's roll. Okay, awesome. Okay, let's uh, let's get into uh, you being a, a lady and being in strength conditioning. Uh, what what I mean, what's it what's it like? So you kind of talked about earlier that that quote of yours, right? The the fear and 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 not wanting to give into the fear. Uh, 
So just talk about your experiences because still, obviously I know there's more ladies that are in strength and conditioning now. Uh, but like I graduated high school in 2006, so I'm 10 years older than you. Like back then, like that, I don't think that was really even a thing, right? We're starting to see more ladies that are like, you know, assistant coaches, like in the NBA and things like that, uh, NFL referees. So it's, it's becoming more, uh, you know, available, but like when I was growing up, that was non-existent and obviously still to this day, strength and conditioning is still a very male dominant, uh, profession and field. So walk us through what it's like Tessa to be a female in a mostly male dominant profession, Talk about that fear stuff and and just what you've learned being a lady within uh, within this arena, so to speak. Oh, okay. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> so you have to learn how to take up space, mm. which especially if you're going to work on the football side. Mm. Um, I think there's parts of it that I can't speak to because my experiences have been mostly football. Um, there's always been some sort of football involvement to some degree. Um, but you have to learn how to take up space. Like you'll have days where you're like in a room and it's four other male strength and conditioning coaches and 60 football players. And then there's you. And it's like, how do I assert myself? How do I still be true to myself? You know, what is my coaching personality? How do I fit into this environment and like, it's just, there's a lot of little things to balance. Like you have to, you just are always aware of how you're moving and you have to be aware of how your statements come off. You have to be aware of like how your tones are perceived. You have to be aware of how you're dressed. You have to be aware of like all these little things that males necessarily don't have to be aware of. And I think there are their own independent struggles on the male side. So I don't want it to come off like, oh, only females have struggles in, in strength and conditioning because it's definitely not. I just think the struggles are different. Um, I think coming into it, you have to pay homage and respect to the women who came before us. There's some women who have been in this field for 30 years. I mean, they were the first to break through the glass door um, and the first to break through that wall. And it's like, you have to respect everything they did for us. And so like, maybe they do stuff and you're like, well, I don't really want to do it like that or whatever that may be. But like, we are only here because of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like something that I, I take that, that concept very seriously. So when I start a job, I want to create more space for more women, whether they want to be in football, basketball, Olympic, whatever part of the field it may be in. I want the job I did to be so good that whenever I leave, they want to hire more females. They want to bring another female into football. They're like, we really like having a female on football. Like, let's find another one. Like, I want to create more opportunities for other females because I'm only here because other females created those opportunities for me. And we're willing to like work through all these uncomfortable situations and face their fears to create more space for us. And so I take that like very seriously. And that's like something I try to communicate a lot to like when I get like female interns, especially like on the football side, like you have to understand that you being here is so much bigger than just you. It's not just about you. Um, I think like, it also depends on like when you started in this field, like you're slowly kind of starting to see like feminine strength coaches kind of come more into 
like plain view. Like if you see me, like I'm very girly for a strength coach. Like I have my mascara on and I always have my nails done and I have earrings in and like, you know, I like having those little things where it's like, okay, you know, like she's a girl, but like that was, that's like a luxury we have now. And that like, wasn't always the case. Um, so like, once again, that kind of goes back to like understanding like where women started in this field and like being grateful about what we do have. But I think it's very, we can be grateful for what we do have and still want better. Just because we've made all this way, there's still a lot more like progress that needs to be made in the field from the female side of things. And I think like just in general, honestly, and we can be grateful for what we have, but I just don't want us to ever, you don't, you don't want to get to that point where it's like, I'm grateful for what I have and I don't want to push more, you know? But once again, it's about like finding that balance. Like how do I push for better? but still show that I'm grateful and like, how do I know where to insert myself? And it's just like, I feel like sometimes it's like a game of chess and maybe I overthink that too much. I can be guilty of that for sure. Um, But it's just like knowing, like, how do you insert yourself? And like also learning how to move on your own, because like when you look at the males, like how they move through a room and how they coach a room up is not going to be how I move through a room and how I coach a room up. And the language they use the player, I may not use the same language. I have found that like, I'm never, like, I'm not a loud person. You may be listening to this and be like, she's a loud person. (laughs) But like at my core, I'm a very like introverted human being. And I like being alone and I like being quiet and reflective and all that stuff. So it's like, I almost have like another like coaching persona that I put on when I step onto the floor. And like how I move the room, like I'm not going to be this like hype, loud coach. I'm going to communicate with my guys a lot differently. Um, And it kind of took me a while to figure out like, what is my style? And I'm still working through it every day. And it took me a minute to understand that like, I don't have to operate the same way that a male operates because like what works for one coach and regardless of gender, what works for one coach doesn't mean that that's going to work for another coach. And that's where I think like the staying true to yourself is like, so it's like a cliche saying, but it's so true in our field, because if you're trying to fake your coaching persona or fake who you are on the floor or with your athletes, like a, your athletes are going to know and B you're going to burn out so quickly because you just like, can't maintain that fake presence. Hmm. Well, what you, I mean, speaking to what you just said, that latter part there, it's you're, you're acting and, and, you know, it's just like somebody that, you know, uh, is lying. The longer you lie, eventually you're going to get caught in that lie because you, you're going to forget your lie, right? Um, if, if we as humans are not being true to who we are at our core, uh, we're, we're yes, we're being fake, but we're, we're also acting and, and you can only act for so long, right? Now, um, a couple of things I want to pull from that because it's very fascinating to me. Uh, you said, uh, initially you said, uh, it's important for me or for us ladies to take up space. What do you mean by that phrase or that terminology? Because I don't necessarily know what you mean. Um, I think it's very easy to like get hidden, hmm. not because anyone's trying to hide you, but maybe just cause they aren't used to having a female in the space. Yeah. And so you have to, you have to 
a kind of know when you're going into a staff is it a staff that's familiar with working with females is it not and just because they aren't doesn't mean they're not gonna do a good job but it's just like hey like there's maybe conversations that need to be had like dress code or how are you going to travel with a men's team like those types of conversations that you may have to be aware that like those are going to be had like I kind of had a a mental check earlier in the year like I've been in football for like five years now over five years so like I'm used to being maybe the only female in the room I'm used to working with males but for some of these coaches that I work with I may be the first female they've worked with maybe not but there's a decent chance I am at least in a coaching parameter and like I had a moment with one staff where they were like well how does traveling work and I was like what do you mean how does traveling work like you know this is how I do it but it made me realize like for them, this is the first time they're dealing or like talking through this situation. But for me, this is not. And so just like being aware of like, just cause it's not my first time doesn't mean it's not their first time. Um, and so I think like kind of going back to like taking up space, you have to be okay with being like, I am here. And whatever that looks like for you, that doesn't mean you have to be like in everyone's face, like, look at me, look at me. But you also have to like be able to stand your ground. Like you're going to have players, girls or guys challenge you. You're going to have other coaches you work with, girls or guys challenge you. Um, you know, there will be moments where there's been moments after games where, you know, if it's like a football game, we'll go across the field, you know, shake hands with the other teams. And I can tell they don't really know how to like interpret me. And so maybe they don't come up to me and shake hands. Or if I'm standing in a group of men's male strength coaches, sometimes like, you know, it's hard to get a word in sometimes. Yeah. And so it's just like little things like that, where it's like, you need to take the initiative to like, shake their hands at the game, introduce yourself, let them know like, hey, I am a strength coach, or like, I am a part of this staff, I do work with football, whatever it may be. And just like being aware that you are going to have to do those little things and take that extra step to make sure you they know, like, I'm in this space, I do my job well, like, realize I'm here. And like being able to hold that because uh, it's hard because you'll have moments and I've definitely had a lot of moments, I think, especially like in the last year and a half where I'll have moments that like kind of make you feel small, to be quite honest. And you kind of have that moment where you get down to the end of the day or maybe you go sit in your office and you're like, I didn't like that. Like, I didn't like how that tone was. I didn't like how I was talked about. I didn't like whatever. And then you have to kind of make that, you have to think through that, like, okay, how am I going to handle this? You know, is this a moment to have like a conversation and like talk about, you know, this is something that like you may encounter with other females on staff. So, like, let's address this. And I think like, I don't kind of snowballing here, but that's like another thing that you have to think about too. Like you want other females to come after you. Like you want to create more space in the field and you want to hold your space and create more space for others. So like that also means like if there's a treatment that you didn't like or maybe a treatment that wasn't or like situation that wasn't handled the best, you have to be able to make that call of like, is this something I'm going to bring to their attention? Like, is this something that may hurt or like I don't want another female to go through in the future? And then it comes back to like, OK, like I'm the one who's got to have that uncomfortable conversation. And it is uncomfortable. Like it's 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 definitely been hard for me at like 23, 24, 25 to like be willing to go sit in my, you know, a boss office who may be 35, 40 years old and been in the field for 20 years and like, make sure like, A, you know, you don't come off disrespectful because you're not, you just want to have a conversation um, and be like, be able to address some of these things. 
And then like, sometimes you have to make that call where you're like, okay, it was a small thing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't intended like that. Maybe it's just a really quick one-on-one conversation with your athlete. So there's just like a lot of calls you have to make. And you're just like really just trying to go with the best. You're trying to handle things the best you can in terms of like, how do I create a positive work environment for myself? How do I create positive relationships for me? And then how do I create a better work environment for the next female that comes? And that's not to say that like the work environments are bad. I don't want it to come across like that, but it's just like, there's still so much learning and growing always happening regardless of what genders are on your staff. And, you know, you always, I feel like most people, anytime you work somewhere, you want to leave the place better and growing more than maybe how you, how you showed up. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so one, one other thing I want to, just touch on here before we kind of move on. Uh, so like I played college football and I know how I was when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was very arrogant, very cocky. Like if there was a female uh, strength and conditioning coach now, obviously, because we all kind of know how to you know play the game. Right. So if there would have been a female strength and conditioning coach in college, I would have respected her to her face because I would have had to have, otherwise I would have gotten quote unquote in trouble by the head strength and conditioning coach or whatever. Uh, Cause that's just the game you got to play. Right. If you want to play the game, uh, but it would have been very, and I'm just being very candid, right. I'm being very honest and open uh, because that's who I want to be. And that's what this podcast is all about. And that this is how we grow as humans is having candid conversations. But uh so my point is, is like, I know how I was at that age, uh, late teens, early twenties, college football player, and just the ego and the arrogance that, uh, is in specifically football players and the strength and conditioning environments. It's a lot of ego. So how do you, and I, I know it's kind of the taking up space thing, but how do you kind of like Cause there's gotta be guys that are disrespectful to you just because you're a woman. I, I know I would have been like, not, I wouldn't have been like mean, but like, I wouldn't have listened to you. I, I wouldn't have gone to you to ask you for your, uh, you know, advice on squatting or anything like that. Cause you're a girl. Like that's, that's just how I was. I, I'm just being very truthful and I'm sure there's still guys like that. So how do you, when you feel that energy from an, uh, an, an athlete or, you know, somebody's being, uh, blatantly disrespectful to you? Like, how do you address that? Like, not not necessarily like a coworker, but specifically a football player. Because I know football players because I was one. Yeah. Um. So I will say they think you're right. You're 100% right. There's definitely kids. And I'm like, I know you do not respect me. Like, I can just tell by the way you talk to me. I can tell by the way you don't talk to me. I can tell by what you ask me about. Um, I think there's some things that I've done in my career. I, you know, I interned for the Rams. I was a Bill Walsh fellow for the Falcons. I'm going to go down to the Jets for training camp this year. So like, I think the fact that I have like this NFL experience, hmm. whether it's at an intern level or would not like that definitely gives me a little bit more credibility. I think when I talk with these guys, because it's like, okay, well, she's been to like where we want to go. So like, shit like she's got to know something um uh so I think that does give me a little bit of credibility but I still do have those athletes for sure uh like I think uh, I was at when I was at Illinois State that was my graduate assistantship I was the first female strength coach that football had really worked with 
and it was tough to like and I was 22 years old so I was like trying to establish myself and trying to be like I'm a coach I'm authority listen to me and I look like freaking one of them and they we have like 25 year olds on the team and they're like why do I listen to you and I'm like that's a great question but you know (laughs) um I think at first I tried to be like kind of snarky back or like maybe I gave attitude when attitude was given to me and like I think that through those experiences I've kind of learned like when to kind of pop back a little bit and then when to like let them work through it on their own I found that sometimes a lot of times it's their own issues with their own ego and their own masculinity and maybe a lot of stuff that they're going through because I know what I went through 18 19 20 you have no idea who you are you think you know what's going on in the world and you have no idea. And um, yeah, so I think through kind of just experiences, I've learned like how to pick my moments. Um, And I also, like I said, I don't know, you still have moments. I think I choose to play it safe at first. So like if I have a kid who comes at me or says a comment, I usually will like, say like hey that's not okay or like I'll like something to make it clear that like the interaction that just happened was not what should have happened Mm -hmm. and then I'll usually like remove myself from the conversation so that I have a moment to calm down I usually tell my director because I am always like about making sure that I'm transparent you like never want it to seem like you were trying to hide something especially like as a like as a coach in general, but definitely as a female, you never want to seem like you're trying to hide something that happened with a player. It just looks fishy. And then it's you versus them. Um, so always go tell your director or your boss. And then from there, me and my boss will kind of like, it's something you want to handle. Is it something that like they can handle? You know, sometimes it's something I've already handled and I just go tell my director like, hey, this is the conversation that was had. Like I'll kind of give you two examples. Like one example, um, I had a kid on a rack who was just, not listening to me at all and like he hadn't listened to a lot of coaches so whether it was about me or whether it was just the kid in general you know whatever it may be it was a max out day he wasn't following his percentages he had failed he wanted to go back again and I said no you're done and he tried to be like well why don't you like me da, 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 all this stuff and I said this conversation is over and then after lift I called him over <laughs> and I walked away and after lift I called him over and I said hey like you need to understand like this is why I cut you off I told you I need to say C X Y and Z in order for you to max you didn't do X Y or Z you didn't listen to me so therefore your maxing is done it's not about whether I like you or not it's about my job is to keep you safe and you weren't you weren't safe and that's why this is over and I was like do you understand and he was like yes and that was it and so at that point you know I go tell my director hey this is what happened I think a more like extreme case was like, I had an athlete once, like uh, we were like kind of joking around. We're doing like a hard, like kind of blue bridge variation that really just kind of kills your hamstrings. And the kid was a a big lineman, um, like six, three, you know, 300 pounds. And I was walking, kind of walking through, just like chopping it up with them as they're kind of dying on this thing. He's like, why are we doing this? And I was like, oh, y'all need it. Like y'all are fine. And then he reached out and he like grabbed my ankle pretty aggressively and like looking back at it I understand that he was playing but to be a 22 year old and have a player grab your ankle like that like it scared the crap out of me um so like at that like then I went and told my director first and then we talked about how to like handle it and you know who was going to have the conversations what conversations were going to be had um and yeah and like you just there's a lot of there's a lot of cautious measures I take 
For example, like I have two Instagram accounts. I have a coaching account and I have a personal account. And I'm barely even on social media, but I simply have those two accounts so that there's one account that I can like post stuff for my athletes, um, you know, and I can interact with them. And it's, it's, this is my coaching account. But if you're my athlete, regardless of gender, if you're my female basketball girls or my male football players, you're not allowed to follow my personal account until you are not my athlete anymore, until you've graduated or if you transferred out or whatever it may be. But that's my rule. Um, and that's just like more to protect me so that like the athletes can't try to have like, you know, they can't try to DM me or like have these inappropriate. It's like you can still protect yourself. But like at the end of the day, these athletes don't they don't fully understand sometimes like all the other aspects that play into it and it's not malicious but it's just you know they're 20 years old they're thinking about themselves um and so you know even with that like you still I still have had kids that I've had to like kick off my coaching profile like just being very candid because it's just like hey I didn't really like how you were interacting with my stuff you know it just seemed like you were maybe trying to take advantage of this and I don't even ever want to leave anything up to chance for someone to interpret the wrong way. So, you know, you're unfollowed and I'll let it follow my coaching account either. And that's just, that's what it is. Hmm. So it's like clearly not like a one cut and dry answer. It's just like, honestly, a lot of like going through the experiences of the kids where they don't respect you handling some right, handling some wrong. Um, and then also kind of maturing the field and understanding. I feel like as I get further away from being their age, it's a little bit easier to be like, okay, well, you know, let's think about what it's like when you're 20 and your thought processes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Are there any uh, head strength and conditioning coaches, females in at any power five schools at this point or not? Um. Yeah. So I think, I think there's one Leanne Blinn is over at ASU. She's the head Olympic director over there. Uh, Stephanie Mock is over at Pitt. Um, I know UNLV has a head female director. I do not remember her name. Um, there's definitely more out there. Those are just kind of like the first couple that pop into my head. Um, but yeah, you're definitely starting to see a lot more uh, female directors. I think there's one. Oh, I think there's one who is Olympic and football, if not more than one. But yeah, you're definitely, don't quote me on that, but cool. you're definitely starting to see a lot more women in uh, leadership roles at SNC. Yeah. yeah, cool. Um, Okay, we're going to start finishing up. I want to touch on a few more things with you, Tessa. Uh, now, in terms of, uh, again, I know you're only 25, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you have some sort of long-term vision or goal or direction that you want to go career-wise. If so, what? Uh, what does that kind of look like at this point in your life, if you don't mind me asking, if you kind of have a clear direction? Otherwise, if you don't, that's okay. But I'm assuming you do because you seem to be a pretty uh, focus-driven individual. Yeah. Um, okay. In the spirit of being candid. Um, yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> if we're talking like biggest dream, yeah. Uh, yeah. Be, be an NFL director of strength and conditioning. Okay. I mean, that would be badass. Um, I don't think it's ever been done in the NFL. Um, you know, if not the NFL, then Power 5 football. But mm -hmm. I want to be a football director. Like, that's the end goal. That's what I'm here for. Okay. Yeah, it's not something I say necessarily out loud all the time to people. <laughs> so, um, 
but yeah, that's, that's like end goal, long-term. That's what I want to achieve. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, now, first of all, why football? Uh, and then second of all, uh, you know, like, how do you, I know you kind of mentioned, you kind of want to, uh, leave whatever place you're at better than, than, uh, you know, you want to leave where you're at better than where, than when you came, but are you kind of like wanting to just kind of like be, uh, you know, paving the way for other females to be like head uh, strength and conditioning coaches or what's your ultimate player, ultimate goal? Not personally, because you, you just mentioned like head, head uh, director for uh, NFL football team, but like in terms of, uh, you know, the, the profession as a whole, is it really just paving the way for more females or where, where are you kind of at with that? Oh, okay. Um, I think I, I want to make sure like I word this correctly. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I want it to I want people to know that like one the meathead stereotype is like not like yeah we're meatheads don't get me wrong I love I love my buys and tries you know love a good squat day but there's so much more to strength coaches and there's so much more that goes into the profession and you have to have really amazing people skills and I think that's something that we're all always working on like there's so many interactions you have that you don't know how to handle until you have it at least once you know, and then hopefully you're better prepared for the next. And every time you think you've seen the weirdest, craziest thing with an athlete or the weirdest situation, there's always something new that pops up. Um, it teaches you to have a lot of compassion. It teaches you to be open and understanding. Uh, you know, it teaches you to go into things very open-minded because if you don't, like you're going to make a lot of enemies and you're not going to create buy-in. Your kids are not going to be invested and you need those kids to be bought in and invested. And they say like, your kids don't care until they know you care. Like that's the truest thing ever. And like, you'll hear, if you could ask any strength coach, and I think anyone who pretty much works in the coaching profession um, across any field, and they'll say that's true. Like your kids have to know that you care about them as people before they give a crap about your X's and O's. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think like more than anything, in my head, like the answer is never no. It's just like, okay, I need to find another way. Mm -hmm. And I guess like I've never like really thought about something and been like this sounds kind of crazy but like I never really thought about something and been like oh that's not possible mm -hmm. or like that won't work or I can't do that like yeah you doubt yourself and you have those moments of like intense doubt mm -hmm. but like I still like know in my gut that like I'm gonna pursue this and I'm gonna try my best to make this happen and so I think I just like want more than anything, like as I move through my career, I want people to realize, like, take the risk, take the jump, like, you never know until you like go after it. And I feel like that kind of sounds a little cliche, but like, I've ended up in some of these like amazing opportunities because I just said, you know what, I'm gonna just put my name out there and we'll see what happens. Um, I'm a big, uh, big risk or sorry, big reward, low risk type of person. Like I've been fortunate where like, I'll have a job and like, there's been a lot of amazing opportunities that I could put my name in for. And it's like, one of the things it's like, why would you not like, you know, I have this right now, but like, I could have this or this opportunity. 
and all you gotta do is put an application in and reach out to some people like why would you not take that risk you know why would you not try that jump the only, you can't lose anything from it. You're only going to gain. And if it's a situation where you're looking at it and you're like, I'm only going to gain if I don't get it, then nothing else changes in my life. But if I do get it, then all these amazing things can happen for me. Like, why would you not take that opportunity? And I like just so fully believe in that concept. And it's so fully the reason that I'm here and like where I'm at today. And I just like, don't be afraid to take the jump, especially if that jump doesn't cost you anything. Um, I know I'm kind of going all over the place here, but yeah, I just like, I want, as I move through my career, like I want people to be like, wow, like she always like one, like she created more space for others. And two, you know, I hope that like there's athletes that I reach where it's like, maybe they felt misunderstood, you know, maybe they needed that person in their corner and like, I think that's kind of all of us in this profession is like, you just really hope you have those athletes that, you know, you were that person for them. I think a lot of us get into this field because maybe you didn't have that person for you in college or athletics. Maybe there wasn't that person that was supporting you. Maybe there wasn't that person that invested in you, or maybe they did, but they didn't do it in a way that was productive for you, or they didn't take the time to get to know you to figure out how to coach you better. And I think that drives a lot of us in this field. It definitely like, you know, I had my fair share of good coaches and coaches that maybe we just didn't click quite right. So I think like, you know, I want my kids to feel like I took the time to understand them and figured out the best way to help them. It's like being a strength coach is not about like us. It's not about me. It's about your kids. It's about the teams. It's about the programs. It's about so much more than just you. You're just like contributing such a bigger picture. And so I feel like, you know, I want people to realize like we're in athletics because we want to be a part of like something bigger than ourselves. Like we're in athletics because it's not about us. It's about others. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just like think that's such a fundamental like part of life is like, we're all always like looking to be a part of something. Like we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Like everyone does, regardless of what that looks like. For some people that may be family, for some people that may be, you know, a team, some people that may be, you know, marriage whatever it may be everyone wants to be a part of something that's bigger than them um so if you have that opportunity like just understand what that opportunity is and take full advantage of it because I think that's like something that brings a lot of community into your life and like a lot of meaning into your life as well why football specifically in terms of like uh you know in the NFL why not basketball or softball or baseball <laughs> or swimming or whatever um so I kind of fell into football accidentally. Uh, the first like internship I did was for like the private sector place that I worked out of or like I worked out at um, when I was a senior in high school. And they just happened to have a lot of like high school football kids come in uh, during the summer when like college football guys would come back. So I was just kind of like the population I started working with um, from the start. And I just like loved the intensity um I loved the drive I love that they wanted to work hard I loved that they want to move big weight and I felt like I feel like I'm a pretty intense person I may not be like an in-your-face person but I feel like <laughs> if you talk with me it's pretty clear I'm a pretty I can be pretty intense at times um and I always felt like I kind of had to pull back on that and that was like something I I struggled with a lot in college actually like I was too intense. I was too aggressive. And I like really tried to hide it. 
And it made me really unhappy trying to hide that part. Like, I remember when I got to college, people would always be like, you're so aggressive, Tessa, you're so aggressive. And I was like, I don't understand what you guys are talking about. Like, I've never been called aggressive in my life until I got to Dartmouth. And what made me realize these qualities that I was trying to hide, you know, I was like, I got to the Rams as an intern and I realized these qualities that I was trying to hide are the qualities that actually make me successful in football. And it was like, wow. So there's like, I love strength and conditioning. And now this, there's this environment within strength and conditioning where I get to be completely myself mm-hmm. and I don't have to hide these qualities that I feel like others think are like weird or too much about me. Like for me, that was just like the thing that like really clicked in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, like, this is where I want to be. This is where I feel comfortable. This is where I'm accepted. Like I want this feeling all the time. Cause I mean, why wouldn't you want that feeling all the time? Um, and then, you know, I think also there's like the challenge aspect of it a little bit. Like every day you're kind of carving the path out on your own, which can be lonely at times for sure. Um, I think as like the females in this field grow and the amount of females in the field grow, the support and like your community grows as well. And it's, it's you have like a lot more people you can reach out to of like, hey, you know, I just had this situation. How did you handle it? Or like, hey, this is my first like full-time football job. Like, can you give me some advice? You know, those types of things. Um, but yeah, football, football made me feel accepted. And it it was one of the places that I felt like I could be like 100% authentic. Mm. So if I feel like I can be the best version of myself here, like that's where I want to be. Cool. Uh, I'm assuming you know who Danica Patrick is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got a podcast for you to listen to her. The actually the name of her podcast is called Pretty Intense. You, <laughs> you, you need you need to check it out there, Tessa. Okay. Okay, I'm definitely gonna check it out. Yeah, because she's uh she's she's uh she's uh she's an awesome individual. Okay, um, kind of the last thing I want to touch on, then I'll get you out of here, Tessa. Uh, and I understand you know uh you you you're uh, up to this point you've like been assisting and you're you're working for you know like you, you're working for people so to speak not necessarily for yourself in terms of like you know your own business and stuff but in terms of like uh philosophy because obviously you know my background is exercise science and owning a gym and strength and conditioning with youth and all that we all over time kind of develop our own philosophy or maybe specific movements that we like better than others or how we like to train youth as opposed to adults, all that stuff. Right. We all kind of find our our, uh, uh, niche, so to speak, within lifting, strength and conditioning, all that. Right. So up to this point, being 25, do you, do you kind of have like a philosophy of your own? Uh, Do you have like a specific way you like to train your athletes or you would like to train your athletes or are you still kind of trying to develop that? Uh, well, I'll just, I'll leave it there. Um, yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) I am definitely still trying to develop it. Uh, you know, I just finished up my second year of being a full-time coach. Um, and I think what people don't understand about strength and conditioning and programming is so much of it is contextual based. Like you may want to train like this, but your athletes may only be able to do this. And then you may also only have this stuff. And then you also may, you know, only get the weight room at this time during this day after practice, you may not, whatever, you know, like there's all these X's and O's that you have to take into consideration. Like, I think if you ask any strength coaches, like the program they want to run and then the program they actually have to run. Um, And so for me, I think it's important that like we're training our kids to be athletes. I think sometimes we get like, it's easy to get lost 
-hmm. and like, oh, I want you to like squat 400 pounds and bench 500. And like, that stuff's important. Don't get me wrong. But like, you're training your kid to be a better basketball player. You're training your kids to be better football players. Like you have to remember, I think it's super important to remember, like, what is the actual goal? Mm -hmm. Um, And then two, I don't have necessarily like an exact programming, like philosophy yet. I've like kind of worked through some stuff, tried differently, like, you know, I've tried triphasic, I've tried different things like that. Um, and I think all of them have their merits to it and I like them. And I think there's moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to use, you know, tempo work here. I'm going to use, you know, velocity based training here. Like, I think there's a time and place for a lot of different training methods. I don't think necessarily has to be like one, like ride or die. This is what I'm going all the time. I will say, I think like, I haven't necessarily found the exact like method of thinking that like totally clicks for my head yet I think I'm close for me I've started getting to like more of the like biomechanical route um like one of the guys who I feel like is pretty prominent right now his name's Connor Harris I started like watching some of his stuff and taking his courses and it's always like bothered me like if you see a kid and let's just say they can't like hinge very well or they can't squat well it's like, oh, well, you just like, you know, you have tight hips or like you just like need to squat to full depth. And it's like, well, I think the kid would be squatting to full depth if they, you know, if they could. Like, I don't think the kid's trying to get to end there. Um, And so I think what biomechanics provides is it kind of provides the answers. It's like, well, OK, like, actually, they're built like this. You know, this is what their infrastructure is like. This is like their tendency is like, oh, like it makes sense. OK, I'll give you an example. Like, for example, me. One concept that I just read about is called like why you may already know about it, but it's like wide versus narrow ISA, um, which is basically just like how your ribs work. So like if you're wide, when you breathe, your your lower ribs expand. And then when you exhale, they just kind of stay put. And it's because your posterior like diaphragm doesn't do a very good job of expanding when you breathe. I'm a wide ISA. And so wide ISAs are really good at hinging and we're not so great at squatting. And I did, I just learned this like, you know, maybe three months ago and I've always hated squatting. If you gave me squats over deadlift, I'm going to choose deadlift every time. Um, And then I know, and then there's the narrow, which is basically the opposite. So it's like, they are, they can use their posterior diaphragm to breathe. And so when they breathe, the ribs expand and then they clench back in because they're using the posterior more than their anterior diaphragm. And they're better at squatting and they're going to have better external rotation of the hips. Like a Y is going to have better internal rotation of the hips. And so just like little things like that, where I'm like, okay, see, like, it's not just that the kid doesn't want to squat. Like they literally have these, like these skeletal structures in them that gives them the tendencies and biases. And now how can I use this to train them better? Like, yeah, all my kids are still going to squat and they're still going to, you know, RDL and hinge, but like, hey, maybe there's a moment where it's like, if we want to really load you up, maybe we do this squat variation because a little bit more of a hinge squat, you know, and I know that you're a wide ISA and we're going to go with that versus Mm -hmm. trying to force you into, you know, ass to grass front squat. Like, I think that is starting to come more into my programming and I'm really excited to like see how that develops. Like I'm really at the beginning of this, I think kind of like thinking process with using biomechanics as like a, programming driver but I feel like it's like one of the first things that's really kind of started to click into place for my head and like makes sense when I look at my athletes so yeah I'm just like really excited to see how that develops 
as I get more into my career. Okay. Okay. Now for me personally, uh, one of the issues I have with like large group strength and conditioning, which that's kind of the typical, I mean, you, you bring in the football team at 6 AM, you've got 60 guys in the weight room. Like it's, it's, it's chaos, right? There's a lot going on. There's a lot to manage. Usually within strength and conditioning, like a, a strength and conditioning team, you're understaffed. You've got grad uh, assistants. Like it's just, and and it's, I have no experience like on the D1 level. I'm speaking more of like the high school weight room, NAIA, D3, some of these smaller schools, even the school that I went to is a, it was NAIA. Now they've transitioned to uh, uh, D2, but still to this day, I mean, it's just the weight room's garbage, right? So the D1 level is like a, like, you know, basically pro level. I'm talking kind of like the lower level, but I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of like that on D1 level too. But so understaffed, way too many kids, way too much going on. You only have so much time. They got to go on to the, the next thing of their day or whatever. So I guess what I'm trying to get at Tessa, like my, one of my biggest issues is like, when it comes to strength and conditioning and, and really educating and teaching uh, lifts and, and all of that type of stuff, like that takes time. And a lot of even these D1 athletes, some of them never even lifted weights in high school. They're, they're just phenomenal athletes. Like I've heard NFL guys that they, they don't even want to be in the weight room. They don't even lift weights. They're just, they're hall of famers. It's just the way it is. It's God's gift to them, I guess. But um I just, I just have an issue with like this big weight room, tons of people understaffed, quote unquote, uh, you know, training time or training sessions. Cause I, I just feel like you're, there's so much to to learn. There's so much you need to teach. And, and, and there's so much uh, specificity, like you're talking about, like, I, 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 I love what you're saying, but how do you take 70 football players and find the time to go through the biomechanics and all that? Right. So how do you kind of like, navigate that how, how can we make that better because i don't i'm, I'm never going to train more than like i have three middle schoolers that's enough for me right because like i can't give them the attention that i want it gives me anxiety if it's if i'm not doing what i know i'm supposed to do so how do we make that better how do we, how do you work through that um okay that's, that's a kind of a loaded question right <laughs> no it's a good question i think i think that's like one of the things that's like the hardest about coming into football and it's like, boom, like you're yeah. in it. 70 kids, four coaches. It's madness. It's chaos. You have to be loud. You have to be able to have super good communication. You have to be direct. Like I see it with our interns all the time. Like I'm like, okay, y'all ready? And they're like, yeah, we ready. And I'm like, no, you're not. And then you just like see the like, their eyes get so big. And they're like, how am I supposed to handle all of this? Um, and that's how I felt too. Like I, there's many lifts that I like, it was in as an intern where I was like, this is chaos. Where do I insert myself? And maybe that's kind of also what I was talking about with like space is like you have to find the areas that you're good at and maybe also where you feel comfortable and start taking up space there. Mm. Um, because like you said, it's chaos. Um, I think on the football side of things, you know, you have four or five coaches on the floor usually. So that definitely helps plus interns. So it's more about like, how do we create the best system to give our athletes the best, the best product. Um, and so like for us, like, you know, that comes in like a programming. How is the room going to flow? I think room flow is like the biggest thing when you're coaching in college. When I coach my basketball girls, I have about 12 girls on the roster and it's usually just me. And so like, I try to program to where like, okay, 
if I stood back, I could see all three things, you know, whatever, let's just say I did a tricep. I can see all three exercises based on how I like made the flow of the room. And that's like stuff that you get better at as the more you program and the more you see like how your programs end up on the floor. And I've definitely had programs where I like put it on the floor and I'm like, whoa, that was not smooth. I was not a good, I was not good choices there. Um, and then also just not trying to do too much. I think sometimes like with team sports, like it's really fun to get like super specific, but like you have to be able to like find that fine line of like, how do I be specific, but also like accomplish what we need to accomplish. Like is, you know, like all of my girls are going to benefit from an RDL regardless of what, if they're a squat, if they like to squat or hinge better, they're all going to like benefit from that. And so you have to be able to keep things simple sometimes and understand that like you can get the job done with basics done really well. And I think that's also kind of something you'll hear from a lot of strength coaches. If you ask them, like we really underestimate doing the basics really well sometimes, and that will get you a really long way. Like you said, like you kids who come in who have a training age of zero at 18, you know, they don't need these crazy training, like philosophies, like they just need to train and get good at training and learn how to train and get the basic movement patterns down. They need to learn, they'd be able to squat, you know, they hinge, push, pull, you know, do some core work. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be rocket science, which I felt like it had to be rocket science when I first started in this field. And I still have moments of like extreme self-doubt in terms of like programming abilities and like, is it complex enough? Is it not complex enough? Whatever. But I would say that like knowing where that line is of programming finding a system that works for you so that you can see everything. And then also to like having, like creating an environment where your athletes coach each other up. I think that's essential to like having a really well running team lift because like, you're right. You're not going to see everything. You're just not. And there's going to be kids who do a, does a rep wrong, or maybe you don't catch their, you know, mistake until their last set. But like, if your other kid, if you have those kids who kind of become leaders in the weight room and help coach each other up, that's what kind of helps keep the ball, keep the ball rolling. And then like, I'd say the very last piece of it is like, sometimes you see a kid and they're doing a rep. Let's just say they're doing it 85% correct. Maybe like there's this very small detail where it's like, okay, this could be a little bit better, but overall they're doing a great job. You know, that's like, sometimes you have those moments where you're like, you know what, they're doing a good job right now. I'm gonna let them work through this. Like, I know that this will kind of self-correct itself. But this kid over here is really like 50% on the mark right now. So I'm going to give this kid my attention. And then, you know, when that kid gets a little bit better, okay, hey, let's come back to this 80% kid. Hey, you know, I think if we just push your toes a little bit out, you know, or like, hey, let's focus on this external cue. Then I think that'll kind of get you that last 10% and really make you, you know, fully locked in on this movement. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like, I've said like eight different things to juggle in order to like create this like harmonious, like team lifting environment. But I think like that's kind of like what I like about the college realm and like working with a team sport is like, how do we, how do we take this chaos and control it? Mm. And I think I relate to that a lot because like, that's how I am as a person. Like I am controlled chaos. Like there's always, it's like, okay, everything's like kind of calm. And then I'm just gonna throw a huge wrench in the plan. And like, that's how I am. Like, that's just who I am as a person. So for me, like when I see that stuff in the weight room, like it makes sense. I'm like, oh yeah, we're just wrangling the chaos. Checks out. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. 
Last question, and then I'm going to kind of give you the opportunity, Tessa, to share anything kind of uh, in closing or, or to, to wrap things up. Um, and I, I know that you are, uh, you know, you're very young, but, you know, you're working with, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, and you've had a, you've had a lot of unique experiences for your age. So with the young people that you uh, are working with, like, because every, I'd say five to 10 years, there's a shift within our culture in terms of the youth, right? Because of all kinds of different reasons, uh, you know, from, from social media to just whatever. But um, in terms of kind of the youth over the last year or two that you've been working with or the, the young people, what do you feel like is like the, the biggest need uh, or, or, or the biggest way that you as a coach can um, empower them or help them beyond just sets and reps, right? Because like you said earlier, uh, you didn't say the word service, but that's the word that kept popping up in my head is like you and, and, and coaches and people in our position, it's, it's about service, right? It's not about us. It's about youth and helping them pursue their dreams, empowering them. So how do you, uh, kind of like meet the young people right where they're at. What are you kind of seeing with this generation in terms of like struggles and issues and how you're able to empower them or help them through some of those struggles and the, those those issues? And again, for me, I'm, I'm looking outside of like the weight room because the weight room is just a, it's an opportunity to connect with humans, right? It's your opportunity to impact people way beyond weights and football, basketball, what have you. Yeah. Um, it's actually something we talk about a lot on my staff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think COVID has really caused that shift mm -hmm. and I've had the like unique experience of, I actually was a senior in college when COVID hit, shut mm -hmm. down my senior seasons. Like I was a COVID athlete and then I was also a COVID coach all within the same year, which, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a really weird shift. Um, chaos though don't you like that tessa yeah i told you control of chaos it's just yeah this yeah. just theme of my life um but it gave me the perspective from both sides and i think that covid is really what's driven this next shift in like the kids that we're getting you get a lot more like i don't want to say sheltered kids but like sheltered in terms of like maybe they had to do high school from home you know they didn't get the same social interactions that maybe you did um i think it seems like there's a lot more people trying to help, but not necessarily helping our athletes in terms of like, there needs, I think there needs to be a certain degree of like figuring crap out on your own. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens a lot. Like when you get to college, because like maybe you're away from home, you're not, or you're not living at home anymore. It's like, now you have to learn how to like navigate the real world. And it's like, I think sometimes like, you know, as colleges, like we want to take care of our kids so much, but we like don't give them the space to like grow into people. And like, I've definitely had athletes where I'm like, dude, when you get to real life, it's going to smack you in the face mm -hmm. because all the crap you get away with here is not going to work in the real world. You're going to have to pay your real bills. There's not going to be someone who's going to bail you out because you spent your stipend on a tattoo instead of groceries. Like if you fail, you know, there's no one in the real world who's going to like check your work on you like if you don't do your work at your job you're getting fired we're not gonna like hold your hand and make sure that you get your classwork done and so I think like more than anything it's true that we're trying to prepare our kids for the real world mm. and maybe like if you asked a strength coach from like who started 10 years ago 
they may be like, oh, well, you know, that's, it. you know, that's always the case. But at least for me, it just seems like, like the kids I went to school with versus like the kids that we're getting now, it's like, you really are just trying to like explain to them, like, this is what real life is like. And like, how do we actually prepare for you to like stand on your own two feet when you walk out those doors after four or five years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also like COVID has like given a lot of kids six years. Mm-hmm. So like now you have kids who've been in college and they're 25 years old and they started 18. And it's like, now you got to go be like a real adult, but you like, you know, so it's like, there's a lot of layers that I think COVID has added on in terms of just like, how do we prepare these kids for the real world? Mm-hmm. And a real world that's like changing all the time. And yeah, I just, I think that's kind of always something that we're trying to do, but maybe it's just because I'm like, going through the early stages of adulthood and I'm like yo like this will hit you in the face if you're not ready for it so I'm really like I really feel like that's what like I'm trying to convey but I would say for me personally that's the big thing like hey y'all real life is real like you better be ready to go because even if you were the star kid in college the second you walk out our doors nobody cares that you were the starter Nobody cares that you were, you know, a four-year first team all-conference kid. Mm. They care, are you doing your job well? Are you paying your bills? Are you contributing to society? Mm. And I also think another big concept that, like, I think stays true regardless of, like, what, how many, how many years you've been in our field is helping our athletes develop themselves more than just being an athlete. I think for so many of us, and I'm sure you relate to this, is, like, your athlete is your whole persona. Like, who are you? You know, I'm a softball player. Like, no, but who are you? You know? And I think that was something that like COVID for me as an athlete, it was like, hey, like I'm like hard in softball mode. We're about to start season, senior year, you know, last ride. And it's like, it's taken away. You're done. You're done being a softball player. And now you got to figure out who you are. I think that's really hard. You've been playing the sport for 18 years and now it's just over. What comes next? So I think like helping our kids and helping them develop a sense of self beyond just like who they are on the field, on the court, and also helping them understand like your value is not just about what you do or don't do as an athlete. Cause I think, and then once again, I'm sure you relate, like I definitely was like this. Like if I didn't have a good game where I wasn't a starter, I didn't see myself as, as worthy. And that's just like not the case at all. But when you're in college and your athlete world is your whole world, that's what it feels like. Mm. Uh, very well said, uh, Tessa. Um, first of all, I just want to say thanks for coming on and and uh, being candid and and opening up and sharing your story, sharing your perspective. It's it's uh it, w- it was great. I really appreciate it. Before I do a quick outro and I let you go, if you have any final thoughts or any final words, anything that you kind of want to leave all of us, I'm going to let you kind of uh, share that. Any shout outs, any, anything that you kind of want to share, uh, you know, social media, even though I know you said you're not much on social media, but um, anything you want to leave with us, going to turn it over to you. I'll do a quick outro and then uh, we'll get you out of here. So platform is yours. Um, well, first and foremost, thank you for having me on. This is really awesome. Uh, it was really cool to talk about, get to talk about all these topics in like such an open way. Uh, I think the big thing I just want to leave everyone with is like, it only takes one yes. It only takes one person to support you. So just because someone else isn't doesn't mean that like that doesn't exist for you. Just maybe you need to find it from somewhere else. And to like having people in your corner and having people who support you and see your dreams like you see them, like 
that is such a big key. Like if that's not something you have, like go find it because it's out there and maybe you just don't have it with you right now, but like that's going to be the difference maker because those are the people, that's the community that's going to get you through those hard days where whatever you're pursuing, you know, is also the, seems to be something that's like bringing you down at the same time. Um, and then in terms of like shout outs, I just, uh, my, I know I talked really highly of my parents and my family, but just want to shout them out again. I literally would not be here without them. They have made everything happen for me. Um, and then I want to give a big shout out to um, all the coaches who have supported me. I think coming up in this field, there's definitely a lot of coaches that I think took a risk on me or took the chance to like develop a female in football. And I'm just really, really grateful for that because they didn't have to do that and they chose to, and they still support me this day. And I wouldn't be here without them as well. And then also my boyfriend, he's been super supportive. He always, once again, no matter how big my dream is, he's like, go get it. Um, so just really grateful to everyone who's always supported me along the way would not be, would not be here alone. Cool. Uh, what's your, what's your, uh, professional Instagram for everybody out there? If they want to check my professional Instagram is at coach Tessa Grossman, all lowercase, all one word. Um, also if you're like someone who wants to talk more, I'm always down to hop on a call and you can just shoot me an email at Tessa Grossman at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word. Um, yeah. If you're someone who's aspiring to be a coach or wants to talk about more getting into the field, like. I'm here to help. That's what, you know, others did for me. And I'm here to pass that on to others. Awesome. All right, Tessa, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. All of you who are tuning into this episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say thank you so very much. Uh, I would love to connect with any of you out there. A couple places that you can find uh, myself on Instagram, Curious and Candid Podcast. And then email is Curious and Candid Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you think you'd be a great guest or if you have a recommendation uh, for the podcast, uh, just go ahead, shoot me an email, introduce yourself or uh, tell me who you think would be a great guest and then we'll kind of take it from there. I'm always uh, looking for great guests uh, to have great conversations on the podcast with. Um, if you guys would please subscribe to Curious in Canada on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review, that'd be greatly appreciated. And then if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can check out my website. And that website is awakentrainingnutrition.com. Again, uh, that's for holistic lifestyle coaching. I appreciate all of you. We'll catch you guys next time.